patterns. You're familiar with patterns? Patterns are a uh, basic fact of the makeup of our universe. Right? We see patterns in mathematics, art, music, science, architecture. Uh, in literature, you may know something uh, of the term a chiasm, A, B, C, B, A, right? These patterns of how uh, things work and how they often repeat uh, and give us clear uh, direction on what is to come. We have patterns. Uh, in uh, science, uh, you know things like waves and frequencies, things that repeat over and over again. You know what's coming next because you've seen what has happened before. And so patterns are really important when it comes to the makeup of our universe, how God has so fashioned all of creation and all of the universe to ascribe to certain patterns and certain functions uh, that allow us to understand the world, allow us to understand nature, allow us uh, to do things like play music, to allow us to do even things like obeying God's word. Because the universe and science and math and architecture aren't the only things that use patterns. Uh, the Bible uses patterns. Uh, the Bible uses patterns often uh, to teach us earthly things that point to heavenly things. Often uh, the Bible uses patterns to help us as people understand things in the here and now, uh, not just for the sake of the here and now, but to show us and to help us understand things of eternal significance. Uh, for instance, uh, Colossians 2.17 that we've talked about previously a few months ago, Colossians 2.17, uh, Paul uh, brings up the fact that festivals and new moons and Sabbaths, these things are shadows of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. And so we recognize that, that even as we look at these festivals and new moons and Sabbaths, which can't save us, and that's what Paul wants the Colossians to understand, these things don't save us, but here's what they do. They point us to eternal realities. These festivals, these new moons, and these Sabbaths, they find their substance in the person of Christ. And so throughout the whole Old Testament, God had set these patterns up that people would walk in them that throughout history, and even now as we look back, we can say, I know exactly what those were for. Those were to help us understand the person of Jesus Christ. So we recognize, at least from a fundamental level, that God uses patterns in the Bible to teach us eternal truths. God uses patterns that help us better recognize and better understand what he's doing in the world uh, and even in eternity. We at least in agreement that far. Good. Because if we agree on that, then it's paramount that you and I as Christians recognize biblical patterns. It's pivotal that you and I uh, recognize them and commit to following biblical patterns. And specifically this morning, we're going to learn the importance of following godly patterns and family relationships, because it's essential that we look for godly biblical patterns in our family relationships, specifically in the realm of raising children, if we hope to effectively lead children to honor God. You see, if we want to help children, and you don't have to be a parent in here to do this, as, uh, as people who are part of God's church, your goal is to live in such a way where you help children know how to honor and glorify God by the way that you yourself are living out your faith. So we don't have to be parents, but we are specifically talking to parents, of course, and, men, and much of this. But we got to understand that neglecting God's biblical patterns for family is going to cause you to miss the whole purpose of God's design for parents, God's design for 
children, uh, and you'll even go as far as misrepresenting God to your own kids. Do you recognize the, the, the gravity of this? That if we do not recognize God's biblical patterns for parents and children, we will go so far as to give our children a misrepresentation of who God is. You may know this. I have a biological father who wasn't that involved in my life growing up. Well, that's not a good representation of God the Father who is intimately involved and aware of our life, correct? Uh, you see, it's very pivotal and imperative uh, that fathers and mothers and even children recognize that we have these godly patterns because if we fail to adhere to them, we skew who God is. We skew the biblical truths of parents and children. So we've got to recognize at a fundamental level that we have got to discover and understand God's biblical patterns and adhere to God's biblical patterns. Why? Well, we went back to Colossians 2. I'll take you back a little bit further as we lay a foundation for where we're going this morning. Uh, Colossians 1, 9 through 10. We need to recognize something if we're going to truly see that we need to obey uh, as children, need to obey their parents and everything, for this pleases the Lord. The goal here is to help you see that this isn't about just your home life. This isn't about you getting it easy as a parent because now your children have to obey you because God said so. There's something more significant here, and I want you to see it. And Paul has already said it in Colossians 1, and I want to take us back to it. In verse 9, Paul says to the church in Colossae, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. Since we heard what? That you have become a Christian. Since the day that we heard that you turned from your sins and you trusted in Christ, here's what we've done. Uh, we have been praying for you. And we have been praying for you, and we've been asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So since you've been a Christian, we've been praying that you would have knowledge and spiritual wisdom and understanding from the Holy Spirit. That's good, right? But why? Well, we get the why in the very next verse. Look at verse 10. The reason that God wants you to have knowledge and spiritual wisdom and understanding is so that you can walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. So we recognize that as we understand biblical patterns and scripture and how we're supposed to apply them, we do it because God wants us to give us direction and wisdom and knowledge and understanding so that we can walk in a manner that is worthy of the Lord. That is, there's a manner in which we have to walk. That means there's a purpose and a pattern that we as Christians are supposed to walk. And our goal is to look at Scripture, figure out what is that manner, and then we walk into it. Now, here's why. Because as we walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, we are fully pleasing to Him. And it will allow us to do this, bear fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Many people can say, you know, I've, I've never grown in my knowledge of God. I haven't had this drive and desire to do it. Well, have you been walking in a manner worthy of the Lord? Because if you're not walking in a manner worthy of the Lord, that is, there's a way that he wants you to walk in his scripture and he's trying to teach you how to do it. Uh, and if you haven't increased in the knowledge of God or bore fruit, it's probably because you're not walking in a manner that pleases God. You're not walking according to the patterns that we see foretold in scripture. Do you, you make that connection there. You want to walk in a way that's pleasing to God. Uh, we have to understand the patterns that God has set in place for our lives. And that's where we get to the main verse this morning, Colossians 3.20, which you can flip there in your Bibles, Colossians chapter 3, verse 20. Now, you need some immediate context here, right? Because we got where in the world is the Apostle Paul coming from as he's writing to the church in Colossae? Well, here's the problem that you run into when you are in Colossae and you're in a family unit in Colossae. 
uh, husbands in the first century Roman culture uh, could be domineering and high-handed. Actually, often many of them were. As a matter of fact, that was uh, what Roman husbands were. They were very domineering and very high-handed people. But not so with the family of God. Not so with, with Roman husbands who have been captured by the gospel, who've turned from their sins and they've trusted in God, no longer can be domineering and high-handed. Now, they have to display the sacrificial, self-giving love of God within their family. So they're no longer dominant, domineering and high-handed, but now they're the kind of husbands that are sacrificial and self-giving. Now, we have wives in these Roman homes who, at the beginning, would submit out of fear. They submitted out of fear of their husbands, but not so much anymore. That's not what we do when we're wives of husbands who are self-giving, self-sacrificial. Now we still submit, but we do it out of honor and respect. We do it now to honor and respect our husbands as to the Lord, which you guys had learned last week. Now, children in first century Roman culture didn't want to be a child uh, because a child was property. A child was owned by the father of the home, and the father could do whatever he sees fit with this child. But not so much in this new home. This new home where the gospel has infiltrated and the father and the mother have turned from their sins and trusted in Christ. Uh, this child is no longer property. It's a stewardship. It's a responsibility to raise this child in a way where it comes to know Christ. But this child can't take advantage of this new family. You see, in Rome, you have all these fathers who are high-handed and, and just domineering, and these wives who just, just submit out of fear. And you see this kind of, this house is run amok, and then parents and children have to sit there, and the child has to do whatever they're told out of fear that they're going to get hurt. But now in this loving family that God has completely flipped around, these children, they can't run around wild in their home just because they now have a loving father and a mother who is teaching them and bringing them up in the knowledge of the Lord. No, no, no. The child also has a responsibility. And the responsibility of the child is to submit and obey their parents in all things, for this is pleasing to the Lord. So you see this juxtaposition from first century Roman culture and now the new family that has been transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ here in Colossae. We see the difference. And can you imagine the difference when mom and dad, Roman mom and Roman dad and Roman baby are, are walking around in culture and people look at that family and they say, this is completely different than what I see going around in my culture today. Well, interestingly enough, uh, that isn't much different than the culture that we live in today. Could you imagine for a moment a father who was self-giving and self-sacrificial to his family and that loved them the way Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her? And then you have a wife who honors and, and respects and submits to her husband as the caregiver and, and the, the head of the home. And then you have these, these kids who are also submitting and obeying their parents. That'd be pretty odd in today's culture too, wouldn't it? We see that sometimes in our church. Uh, you know, people uh, will say, you know, your kids, tell me how you make them do that. Why, why do they do that thing? And what thing? That thing you tell them, they just listen to you. <laughs> like, or uh, you get this one all the time. People come up to me, hey, where, where, did, how, where did you get a wife that, like that? A wife that she listens? Your wife that cares about you? A wife who, who she follows your leadership? Where did you get a wife like that? And I said, the Bible. The Bible. Uh, or uh, people go you know, to the wives. Other gals come up to uh, the wives of our church and say, where do you get a, a husband like that? 
the kind of husband who loves you? Like the kind of husband who like didn't go golfing this week because he needed to spend time with you this week? Like, where do you get a, a husband like that? Tell me, I'd like to go get one. Compass Bible Church, okay? <laughs> it's no more strange in the first century culture than it is in the 21st century culture where these are still problems that we face. And God has given us patterns for all times that if we would adhere to them and obey the tenets of Scripture, that we would have homes that are flipped, so to speak, in our culture, and we would be able to declare the the life-changing message of the gospel in a way where people recognize that it doesn't just change your eternity, it also changes your here and now in so many different ways. Now, as we jump into Colossians 3.20, I want you to recognize something. Uh, The Bible is not commanding children to obey parents to make your life easier. I know you may treat the Bible that way when it comes to your kids. You open up Colossians 3.20, say, see this? See this? All right. Don't listen to me. God's going to be mad at you. Okay. This is often how we use scripture, uh, but what if, and I say what if, I'm telling you this is, this is if, this is it, right? Uh, that there is something God wants to convey to the world through a child's obedience to their parents. This has got nothing to do with you. This has got everything to do with God and how he wants to show you and I how God relates to us and how God, the Father, even relates to Christ, the Son. And so will you not understand something? Uh, you getting your child to obey you and to listen to you in the home is got little to do with you and much to do with God. And so now when we recognize the need to parent our children well, we need to see this as a gospel call, a gospel issue. I want my kids to obey me because it's pleasing to me, but I want them to obey because it pleases the Father. And it shows the world something that is true about God that I need the world to know. And that is that God loves his children and he wants his children to obey him. And there are consequences for children who do not obey the Father. And we need to recognize, as parents, we are called to help the world recognize the relationship between God and people. And our, the way that we raise our children say a lot about what we believe about God. So we see a pattern emerging when it comes to radical family change because of the gospel. But what heavenly pattern can we actually see emerging here? What actual heavenly pattern can we see in our lives because of this? Well, I want you to flip open to 1 Corinthians 11.3. Go to it. Flip to that scripture. 1 Corinthians 11.3. 1 Corinthians 11.3, the Apostle Paul is talking to the church there in Corinth. And here's a, a heavenly pattern that uh, Paul is making explicit here on earth. 1 Corinthians 11.3, it says this. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. So here, right, we see a pattern, right? That's a pattern. We saw that, right? Here's this. Here's the purpose of this. Here's the purpose of this. Here's the purpose of this. And here's how it's going to play out in our homes and in our lives. And here's how it's going to connect to eternal things, okay? Because we see that godly authority is not just an earthly reality, but a heavenly reality. Could we at least agree on that? That, that we understand that godly authority is not just an earthly reality, it's a heavenly reality. That is, uh, we don't all submit to these authorities here and then somehow get to heaven and we're all uh, autonomous, free to do whatever we want with no uh, universe uh, with God. I mean, God is the, the authority of the universe. Christ is actually uh, 
submitted the whole universe to himself, and he's ruler over all of it. So we recognize that there are authorities in eternity and authorities, authorities presently, and they're supposed to correspond to one another to show us more about who God is and how God uses authority. Now, for instance... The head and authority of every man is Christ. Christ is the head of all rule and authority forever. We recognize that, right? Christ is the head of man, of all, of everyone, right? I mean, we recognize that to be a true statement. Well, how much uh, could we show that to people if in our homes, in the here and now, we would submit to Christ? You recognize this. If we know this to be true, that Christ is the rule and authority over all creation from here on out to eternity, then why don't we live that way in our homes? That is the godly pattern, that in all of our homes, they are in submission to Christ. Right? That is a present reality that shows us a future reality that we're all going to be under and subjected to at the revealing of Christ. That's the first one. The second one, the head and the authority of the wife is her husband. This is such an important thing that Pastor Evan talked to you guys about last week. And here's why this is important. There's only one marriage in eternity. If you're married in here and you think you're going to be married in eternity, yes and no. Yes, you'll be married. No, you won't be married to your spouse. Okay? Uh, you're going to be married to Christ. Okay? As Ephesians 5, 22 through 33 state, uh, when Paul is talking about uh, wives, submit to your husband in all things as to the Lord. Here's why. Because Paul's not talking about husbands and wives, which he is. He's talking about Christ and the church. And so you recognize husband and wife. You represent here on earth a real relationship between Christ and his church. And so we recognize it as Christ is the head of all rule and authority. Then the church is going to what? Submit under the authority of Christ. And so in the same way, we're going to represent that within our family units by the wife recognizing that, that God has given authority of the husband in the home to represent Christ in the home. And I, as, as the wife, would represent the church. And just as a church should submit in all things to Christ, who's the authority of it, the wife would also allow her husband to lead her, and he, she would honor and respect and submit to him in all things. Show that we can show people an eternal relationship that truly exists through this temporary relationship that we're now in. Isn't that significant? And then as uh, the husband is loving and self-giving and self-sacrificial uh, to his wife, people recognize the kind of God who has given himself for the church, then he has ransomed the church for him through his own sacrifice and self-giving nature. We recognize how your marriage and the way that you raise your kid, they exemplify the nature of God. So that your, your marriage isn't about you. The way you raise your child isn't about you. It's about God and how he has patterned even the relationships that we have here on earth to say something about him. That's why it's important that as Christians, we get this right. We get our homes in order. We get them right. Our husbands and wives, we get it right. Our kids, we need to get it right. Parents, we need to get it right with our kids. Here's the next one. We read that the head of Christ is God. Now, we see that Christ, the Son, submits to God, the Father. Now, here's a, here's a problem. Maybe you get in, in Trinitarian, if you're, if you're Trinitarian thoughts right now. Right? What about the Trinity? Well, you can't tell me that, that, God, that Jesus is submissive to God, and that would make him inferior and all, you know, all that good stuff. Okay, let me put it to you this way. If your definition of authority cannot compute with the idea that Christ the Son would submit to the will of God the Father, you have a bad view of authority and submission. As a matter of fact, I would say you have a faulty view of authority and submission. Because we understand this about Christ and God and the Holy Spirit, that you have God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, that they are this, they're equal in essence. That is, their character, who they are, 
are equal. They're all fully God. It is one God expressed in three persons. They have independent wills. They have independent emotions. That's why they're persons, right? They have independent personalities, but they are one God expressed in three persons. So we recognize something that they're all equal. However, they are different in what we call function. Equal in essence, different in function. You, if you want to know more about the Trinity, you should write that down. Equal in essence, different in function. That's how we describe the Trinity. Now, this is important. Why? Well, uh, if Christ the Son submits to God the Father, then there is a relationship there between why the wife of the home would submit to the husband of the home, and then why children should submit in all things to their parents. Because we recognize here that God is trying to show us eternal truths through even the relationships that we have when we wake up in the morning, put our feet on the ground, and start the day. That every one of your relationships are supposed to declare and articulate something about God. And that is the, the evil and the despair when your marriage and your children do not reflect the truths of God. And that's why we fight so hard in God's church to make sure that we are living in our families in a way that, is, uh, that follows the manners of of scripture, and it is in a manner worthy of the Lord. Now, can I explain to you this equal in essence, different in function? At least jot this down, I'll read it. Philippians 2, 5 through 8. What does it mean to be equal in essence, but different in function? Here's what it means. Philippians 2, 5 through 8. It says this, that Christ, although he was in the form of God, that means although he was equal to God, he did not account his equality with God something to be grasped or something to be attained or something to have gone after. That is, Jesus and God are, are equal. They are both God, fully God. And in Jesus's fullness of deity, he literally proclaimed, this is not something that I'm going to grasp at because I have a role to play. I have a function and my function is to humble myself in obedience to the Father, God the Father, because I have a purpose here on earth. And my purpose here is to submit myself to obedience all the way to death, even death on a cross. Do you see the significance of that? God the Father and God the Son are equal. But God the Son submitted himself in obedience because his function was to be the sacrifice for all of those who would call on the name of Christ. So without Christ taking on his function and his purpose and his role in the Trinity, we have no salvation. That's strong. And I'm saying that if that cannot be your view of authority and submission, you're going to completely miss out on why in the world you have a husband-wife dynamic in Scripture where there's a submissive one and where there's one that's leading. And you're going to misunderstand why in the world do we need to teach kids to be submissive because that is the, that is the Trinity. That's how we explain God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. That's how we show eternal realities in the real time here in our life right now. And so we don't balk at fam biblical family dynamics. We look at them and say, what a gracious God that he's not only given us his word, but he's given us real life relationships to live out godly patterns. And we need to recognize that as people. We need to see, okay, yes, God has given us authorities and, and he's given us dynamics of authority, but we need to say, what is God's view on authority? I would argue that it's a lot different than yours and I's. God's view on authority says this, 1 Peter 2, 13 through 16. 1 Peter 2, 13 through 16. You don't have to flip there. You maybe just jot it down. 
It says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. So here we are. For the Lord's sake, this is for the Lord. You need to be subject to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or the governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Now here it is. You're, gonna, you're not going to want to miss this. For this is the will of God. You want to know the will of God? We all do, right? I mean, that's, how many times do you pray that? God, I just want to know your will. If you just tell me your will, just give me a peek. I'm going to run after it. I'll do it. If you just tell me what your will is, well, here it is. Run after it, because here it is. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. That is the goal, that as we submit ourselves to the, the Lord's authority, to the authority that he's placed over us, we then, by continuing to live out lives that are in a manner of Christ, that we are putting people to shame by saying, uh, People, they just want to balk at authority. They want to balk at uh, the nuclear family. They want to balk at the government, all these things. But God has a bigger picture to play here. And it's not, and it's not for us to do a life our own way and how we, how we feel ourselves. What God wants us to do is reflect him properly. And so there's something more important in our lives than our own desires and our own feelings about authority. There's something more important, and that is this, that God desires to do something through you obeying authority. And it's going to put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. People want to live life their own way. People have their own thoughts about authority. People who have their own thoughts about the family and what's not necessary and what is necessary. All of these sociological principles of, uh, you know, single family households or, you know, we don't really need kids. All these things. God's going to put those things to shame when they look at the family of God practicing godly patterns in the home because they won't be able to refute the truths of Scripture being played out in homes where fathers and mothers and children are all living in harmony together and they're producing something in society that can only be produced by the Holy Spirit. So we have a purpose for obedience. At the end of the day, it says living as people who are free. We're free, right? We're free in Christ. We know that. We are free. But it says this, don't use your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but live as servants of God. At the end of the day, whether you're a husband or a wife or a child or whoever you are, I mean, you're living as a servant of God. The word's doulos, so it's slave. That is, he's bought you, you are his, you are there to do what he wants you to do. And so that informs everything that I need to know about being a dad and a husband, because it's not my will. It's not that I have, oh, I have this authority now, I guess I can get my wife to do that, and my kids got to do that. And like, no, I have, I'm a servant of God. So my goal is to do what God asked me to do, then lead my wife and my kids to do what God would want them to do, not what I want them to do. Do you see the difference between a radically changed, gospel-driven family? A lot different than what we see in culture. Then I want you to see, as we understood God's view on authority, I want you to understand the purpose of obedience. Look at the purpose of obedience in Romans 5.19. Romans 5.19, we need to understand something about disobedience. Disobedience has always marked human society. From Genesis 3 all the way until Christ comes and bring, ushers in the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem, until that time comes, disobedience has always marked culture. As a matter of fact, not only has it marked culture, we have twisted it and made it something to adhere to or something to pursue is the right kind of disobedience. We've done it, but we need to understand that, that isn't the way that God sees disobedience. Romans 5.19 says this, For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. It is, the disobedience has done one thing in our world. It has created sinners. 
one man's disobedient, Adam being our federal head, that means he, he federally represented all of humanity. Adam means man in Hebrew, so Adam is a proper name, but is also the name for all men. So he is our federal head, Adam. Uh, his disobedience made all people sinners. And now we have a sin nature that we don't get rid of. And that happened because of one man's disobedience. And at the end of the day, we need to recognize that not following God's patterns for life makes one a sinner. Right? We have a pattern in the garden. Have all everything you want. Rule and subdue the earth. Be fruitful and multiply with your wife. Do everything you want to do. Don't eat that fruit on that tree. Everything else is yours. Go ahead. What do they do? They disobeyed the one command that God told them to obey. They became sinners because they didn't adhere to the patterns that God had set place in the garden. It's the same concept in our culture. When we don't adhere to God's biblical patterns, we're then sinners. Now, here's the good news, and here's why, the, is why there's a real purpose for obedience even in our homes. It is that obedience to the proper authority has always been the answer. Obedience to the proper authority has always been the answer. The rest of Romans 5.19 all right, you got one man's disobedience and made everyone a sinner. You have one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. You now have someone who is being obedient, and that is Christ. His obedience has now made people righteous, has now given people the opportunity to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And so we recognize that disobedience has always been the problem, and obedience has always been the solution. You see, God has always made it possible through his word, to give detailed patterns for familiar relationships. He does. And when we look in scripture, we look in Deuteronomy, we look in Genesis, we look in Exodus, all the way through the, the laws of Moses, all the way through the Pentateuch, all the way through the Old Testament and the writings and the poetry, all the way through the gospels and the letters to the churches and all, all, all through them. There's patterns of how we are to live as family units. And because it's so clear in scripture, that's why we need to do this. And it's point number one. You need to adhere to biblical patterns of authority. You need to adhere to biblical patterns of authority. When I was five years old, this is a great story. When I was five years old, uh, just like every good country boy in Texas, I was wearing boots, uh, basketball shorts, and a cutoff t-shirt. I was looking good, all right? and uh, my stepdad and I were going to my mama and papa's house. Ain't a better place to go from the five-year-old child than mama and papa's house. And I was, I was going, and uh, my dad was holding my hand, and I ripped away, and I just started running, you know, and I was running, running, running. Well, we lived off a dirt road in the country, uh, and if you know anything about dirt roads in the country, there's often a lot of broken bottles on the sides of the road and in, in the area. And so I just started running, and uh, my dad said, stop, stop, you don't want to hurt yourself. And I said, I looked back at my dad like I was the smartest kid in the world. And I was like, don't worry, dad, I'll be fine. I turned around. And the second I turned around, I tripped over my boots. I fell on the ground and a broken bottle went right into my leg. And I was gushing with blood. Uh, I wasn't seeing my mom and papa that day. Uh, my dad picks me up. They rush me to the clinic, also in the small town of Ladonia, Texas, where anesthesia is, uh, is apparently an option. Uh, and <laughs> they, I'm five years old, and the nurse comes in and starts sewing uh, stitches into my legs with no anesthesia. And uh, they give me three. Three. They give me three. I'm like, you think three is going to do? I'm five. I didn't argue that point. All right. And three stitches, and okay, I was cleaned up. 
I was going back home, and as any good five-year-old Texan boy, I asked my mom, can I go back outside and play? And so I went back outside, and I was playing, uh, got in a swing, and I was kicking my legs back and forth. And as I kicked my legs back and forth, it reopened my leg. And so, again, not going to my mom and so my dad picks me up. We go back to the same clinic. This time, they forward me the opportunity to have anesthesia, uh, and then they give me four stitches. And so I take two trips to the clinic. I'm hurting and lots of pain, and I could have just that whole time, as my dad told me to stop, I could have been like, you know what, Dad, you're right. You've been around a lot longer than me. You love me. You want my well-being. You're self-giving and self-sacrificial, and I recognize that my role as a child would be to submit to you in all things, and although I want to run my little tail to my mom and papa's house, I will walk with you hand in hand. Uh, I would have been a lot happier boy that day, wouldn't I? The point is, as I still today, at my age, have a Uh, three-inch gash on my leg that reminds me of my disobedience to my father at five years old. And I say it is my favorite scar that I've ever had uh, because it is such a great reminder that God has given us biblical patterns of authority that he asks and commands that we would submit ourselves under for our good. And it's important that we adhere to those things. And we all have positions of obedience we must submit to. You recognize that, all of us. Every one of us, you don't outgrow it. Right? You don't, even if all your family is not here, you have patterns of obedience, whether it's in marriage, whether it's at work, whether it's at church, and we won't get into that, but there's a lot of scriptures you can look up, Hebrews 13, 7 and 17, I won't, yeah, you, you go read those and come tell me what they say. Uh, IRS, we know that, tax day is coming, okay, you know you got some authority, you got to pay Caesar what's Caesar's, okay? Uh, you recognize that we just have patterns of authority that's placed over us, that God has placed there, and no matter who we are or where we are, we all have these people and these institutions that we must submit our lives to. And the truth is we never grow out of godly authority. It's an eternal principle that we find throughout Scripture for all times. And we need to help our homes understand those biblical principles. Now, I want to get into the focus of today's text. Children. Children, obey your parents and everything, for this pleases the Lord. So when I was researching this sermon, I got right on the Google like every good pastor, and I typed in... Uh, give me statistics on uh, children's obedience in America. <laughs> Hit dinner. Uh, there is not a, I couldn't find a single statistic on American childhood obedience. It probably has something to say with the lack thereof, but that's not my point. Okay, uh, as I type that in and I'm looking at a list, uh, here's five of the articles that popped up. Uh, when I looked up childhood obedience, these are the ones that popped up. The virtue of disobedience. First page, I'm not even trying real hard. The need for social disobedience. The power of being disobedient and why disobedient children make great entrepreneurs. These are the articles that I found on the first page of looking for statistics on obedient children. I found a whole list of why it's good and virtuous in our society to have disobedient children. Now, I hope you don't see me as some archaic somehow young slash old man who's mad at society, because I'm not. But what I am is I'm serious that God's trying to do something through our families and through our children that displays something about him that is true and beautiful and wonderful, and our society doesn't see it, and they're blind to it, and they don't want any part of it. 
And I'm saying this cannot be in our homes. I get it that when you have a mini me running around the house and they do something autonomous, right? They do something on their own. Uh, even if it's disobedient, it kind of gives you that little, you know, blip in your heart and saying, oh, they did something on their own. And even if it's disobedient, you think, wow, that was so good that they did something on their own. Uh, and you got to recognize that as a parent, we have to make sure that we kill the disobedience in the hearts of our children, even if at the time you're proud that your child did something. And I don't I mean, that's twisted, but it's the truth, right? We do that, don't we, as parents? Because here's a problem, all right? Here's the problem that the world doesn't see when it comes to disobedience. Flip open, because I want you to flip open to this scripture. 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 through 9. 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 through 9. Here's why that I don't care uh, if my child learns the virtuous lifestyle of disobedience. Here's why it would not bother me if my child never entered into social disobedience. Here's why I don't care if my child ever understands the power of disobedience. And here's why I don't care if my child never becomes the CEO of a Fortune 500 company. Here's why I don't care about those things. Because I care about this thing. 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 through 9. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. You see, as Christian parents, there is a fundamental truth in scripture that the wrath of God is coming on the world and on those who do not know God or obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the world doesn't see it coming. And that's why we're here to tell the world this is coming. And in the meantime, I'm going to make sure that I'm not also throwing my kids out into a culture where disobedience is okay, because disobedience is the very reason the wrath of God is coming. And so I need to make sure within my home that my children are not running down the path of disobedience in my home because I need to teach them something. And if I'm going to do that, I need to do this, and it's point number two. I need to reject any desire to accept disobedience as a positive attribute. You need to reject any desire. And I know it's going to be a desire. At times, it will be a desire for you to accept your child's disobedience. And what I'm saying is we need to reject any desire to accept disobedience as a positive attribute. I know... Some of you are thinking, well, there are exceptions. Well, there are exceptions. Okay, I'll give it to you. There are exceptions. There are exceptions. Uh, but before I get to the exceptions, let me clarify something. There are no exceptions when the home is adhering to the godly patterns of family. When the husband is doing what the husband's supposed to, the wife is doing what the wives are supposed to, there is no exception on the kids obeying and submitting to their parents. Okay, but because we live in a fallen, twisted world, there are exceptions to this. And here's, and I'm not going to get into a lot of them, I'm going to tell you. Actually, if you want to get into a lot of them, Pastor Evan and I actually did it on our Compass Equip podcast. If you listen to that, we went over a lot of exceptions on our Compass Equip podcast. So if you want to know more of those exceptions, go on and watch the podcast that releases uh, tonight. And you'll be able to hear a lot more about the exceptions. But at least one to get your mind at ease. Uh, this reality that if uh, parents are in sin, are in open sin, and they're inviting their children to participate in open rebellion against God, there is a great situation for the child not to have to obey the parents. We recognize that. Because at the end of the day, I need to obey my heavenly father uh, when my earthly father and mother are not walking in obedience to God. So we recognize, see, there are some exceptions. And there's other exceptions. Uh, but that's the one to give you to recognize. There are exceptions. Uh, but I'm not talking about exceptions because I'm talking about the rule. And the rule is when mom and dad are living in a manner that pleases the Lord, then there are no exceptions. 
It is in every way possible children would submit to their parents. Now, there are two scriptures that I want you to jot down. Romans 1.30. Romans 1.30. The time you're going to get out of here today? I'm kidding. I'm just, just kidding. Uh, <laughs> 2 Timothy 3.2. 2 Timothy 3.2. I want you to write down both of these, and I want you to look them up later. But briefly, these are a list of abhorrent sins to God. These are lists of reasons why the wrath of God is being poured out on society. And they are things like uh, murder, adultery, uh, envy, strife, anger. All these things, these really, really, really bad lists of terrible sins. Uh, and in both of these lists, there's a common denominator. The term disobedient to parents. Now, here's why that's significant. Because in our culture, that's not such a bad thing. We might even look and say, well, why is that in there? Who added that later? Okay, nobody. Okay, it was in the original manuscripts. And here's why. Even if you and I don't share the same sentiments with God about disobedient children, God does. And so at the end of the day, I'm going to uh, submit myself to God. And when God says that disobedient to parents is a, is a sin that is in the classification as murder and adultery and envy, I'm going to recognize this is God's world and God's economy, and I'm going to work within those patterns. And so in that way, it doesn't seem so sweet to teach my child the virtue of disobedience. It doesn't seem so great to look at my child like, like so many people do, and someday my daughter, she's either going to be a CEO or the leader of a gang in prison. It's like, you know, those aren't good things, okay? Those aren't good things. We need to teach our child how they uh, could perhaps do one, and if it does hinder them from being a CEO, at least they won't be a leader of a gang in prison, and they won't be at the enmity and wrath of God in the day of the Lord. See, the problem is disobedience is seen as a positive expression of personal autonomy in our culture. It is. You learn that in school. If your kids are in school right now, they're learning that. When you go to college and you're in the social sciences, you're going to learn that. Uh, if you're just watching the news, you're going to learn that. But in the Bible, it, it's completely opposite. As a matter of fact, you read this. You can jot this verse down. Hebrews 5, 7 through 9. Hebrews 5, 7 through 9. It says this, talking about Jesus. It says, although Jesus was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. That is, he suffered for what? Our sins. And in suffering for our sins, he learned obedience. And now you can have a problem here, right? Like, what do you mean he learned disobedience? I thought he was perfect and knew. Okay, great. Uh, but what he, what he learned, I want you to understand, was the actual consequences of our sin. The actual physical representation of the consequences of our sin. That is, he suffered actually for our disobedience. Right? He suffered thoroughly for our disobedience. That is, he was crucified. He had nails in his, his wrists, in his feet, a crown of thorns. He had been whipped. He had been beaten. He had been mocked. He had been stripped of all of his clothes. And he had been hung on a cross away from the glory of God. God had turned his face on him, and the world was mocking him. He actually, I want you to understand the word actually, he actually took the discipline and the suffering and learned obedience. Okay, so it wasn't that he was lacking anything, but he learned the actuality of the cost of disobedience. Something that you and I hopefully will never have to deal with. So through that, Christ learned obedience through what he suffered. Now, here's, that's, bad, that's bad enough, but here's what happens in the good way. Verse 9. 
and being made perfect. He was made perfect through his suffering, right? Uh, when he conquered death and the grave, he ascended. He defeated death and the grave and sin, conquered all those things. So being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all those who obey him. Okay? That's the crux of this that I want you to understand. Christ, he suffered for our disobedience. So far be it for me to teach my children disobedience when Christ had to suffer for that disobedience. And then, not only that, I recognize that him in his perfection, he has now become the source of salvation for all those who obey. And that is important for me because my goal is to help my child see the consequences of disobedience and to understand the cost of disobedience and then help them understand how obedience not only creates a pattern in the home that's acceptable to the Lord, but also allows them to understand what it takes for salvation. To help my children understand that, the, the, that in my home, that if there's consequences for disobedience, there's also consequences for disobedience when it comes to my eternal relationship with God the Father. And so for me, I've got to understand that here's the filter that you can use for your children. My child is going to see consequences of disobedience in my home, and I'm going to help them see the consequences of sin in relation to God and others. You see, the problem is so many times in our homes, we will not help our children see the real consequences of sin. And so when they grow up or they hear the gospel for the first time or they read the Bible or a mean old pastor with a beard says, there's consequences for sin uh, and the wrath of God is coming, they have no filter to filter that through because they've never had it in the home. And God has put it in the home so at the earliest stages of a, a developmental life, they can recognize that there's always been consequences for sin. There always will be consequences for sin. And even in the wild culture we live in, it doesn't cover up that there are consequences for sin. People just won't talk about it. But Scripture talks about it, and God talks about it. And so what are some practical things we can do in our home for our kiddos? Here's a good practical step. You need to make the patterns of obedience clear. Make the patterns of obedience in your home clear. They shouldn't be foggy, right? Uh, your children, they shouldn't be foggy in your mind, and they shouldn't be foggy in your kid's mind. You know, that is, you should tell your child, here's the lines of obedience and disobedience. When you cross over this line, uh, it's not a blurred line. When you cross it, you recognize that you crossed the line, okay? You need to make that line obvious and clear, that means you, you and you and a wife or you and husband need to have already had the conversation to say, here's the lines in our family. And my child knows when they cross it because it's clear to us and it's clear to them. And when they cross it, that is the line of disobedience and therefore there's going to be consequences. See, isn't that not a real clear representation of, of society and God's problem with disobedience? Yeah, it's just a great opportunity for you to help your children learn. Because like God does for us, we need to lay out rules and consequences. We see it all throughout Scripture. If you will obey God and follow His commandments in the Old Testament, you're going to be blessed. And if you don't follow these things, uh, you're going to be cursed. Okay? That's, the, that's the theology of blessings and cursings we find in the Old Testament. Now, gracefully, in a lot of ways, we don't fall under blessings and cursings here in the New Testament. But it's still all the true is that if we don't obey Christ's message of the gospel, there's going to be consequences. So there's a message that has been proclaimed. It has been clear. The line has been drawn. Uh, and if we do not adhere to that message of the gospel, there is consequences. When we do this in our home, we're setting up our children to learn about the gospel. We're setting up our children to be brought up in the admonition of the Lord, to be made wise unto salvation. And when we get to the right age where God will open their eyes, they'll respond to it and say, my parents have been teaching me about this my whole life. And it also says it in the scripture. You are going a long way to help your children come to know God by creating these patterns in the home. Did you know 
one of the most popular titles of people who follow Christ in the New Testament is children. One of the most popular titles in the New Testament of people who follow Christ is children. That's significant because everything that we just talked about here applies to you. Because if you're a Christian in here, everything we just talked about applies to you and not just the kiddos. All of us. We all recognize that as children of God, we are under the authority of God. Now, here's a problem, and this is one of the problems that we face in parenting, is that we expect children to follow direction in ways they've never seen modeled in their own home. We are expecting children to obey authority when they've never seen their parents submit to the authority of God. And that becomes a real big problem because our children have no idea where to go. Now, they have no excuse because the scripture says, uh, even as these children grow old, they recognize the difference between right and wrong. They're still going to be held accountable, but you are going to have skewed their understanding of who God is and what disobedience is and what consequences so much because you won't even adhere to those biblical patterns in your own life. And that is a, it is a bad, vivid problem in our culture that we have parents who won't submit themselves to God. And no wonder we don't have children who don't submit in obedience to their parents or to the Lord's will. So not only have we not provided biblical patterns in our homes, but we've also neglected to provide biblical patterns of personal obedience in our homes. Right? It's one thing uh, to not give biblical patterns of obedience in your home. It's another thing to never even give patterns of personal obedience in the home. Um, how many of you know it's, uh, it is God's will, and God has commanded in Scripture that you would uh, read his word regularly? Anybody? Just a couple people in here? Okay. Well, for the rest of you, God's word says you must read his word regularly. Now everybody can raise their hand. Good. Uh, do you do it? Okay. Uh, God's word says that you should pray unceasingly, that you should be all, in prayer always, giving thanks to the Lord. Uh, how many of you are uh, daily in prayer to the Lord? His word says it. Okay. Uh, so my problem with this, and I hope you're getting my point. I can go on and on and on. There's, uh, here's a good one. Uh, <laughs> God has set apart a whole people for himself, and he's called it his church, okay? And in his church, he has called people to build his church. He has called leaders to come administer the church, and he's called everyone else to come and serve the church and build the church up and to get in community together, okay? Uh, I'm preaching to the choir a little bit, but church attendance, small group attendance, serving in God's church. We know these things are, are explicitly spelled out in Scripture. Do you do those? My point is this, you want your children to do all these things because mom and dad said so, but yet God the Father has said so, and we have shirked all of our culpability when it comes to our responsibility to submit to God the Father. And it's going to be really hard for your children to understand you when you won't do this, and it's point number three, obey your heavenly Father. Because if you hope to drive your children into holy obedience to God, then you're going to have to make sure that you yourself obey your heavenly Father. Put it this way, when uh, your kid's at the grocery store and you take your kids to the grocery store, if you even do that anymore, you probably know that's real, it's real crazy nowadays because they'll just run everywhere. Uh, but they do, and you're like, come on, we got to go. Now, I'm going to count to three. Do you want a candy? Candy. And, and a Coke? Okay, all right. If you come on, I'll give you candy and a Coke. And some, okay, and some chips. Okay, nothing more. Okay, yeah, one for your sister too. Yes, come on. Okay, all right. You recognize the problem with that, okay? Uh, but when God says, come follow me, and you don't, what's the difference? 
okay? Uh, when your child is out uh, at the dog park and they're messing in some brown stuff in the park, and you don't, don't touch that. Don't, that's not good. Don't put that in your mouth. Oh. And uh, they don't listen. But yet when God says, hey, quit meddling in that sin, and then you linger around it a little longer, do you recognize the biblical patterns I'm pointing out to you here? We have two disobedient children here that both need to learn obedience. And it doesn't matter for a parent or a child. Last verse, 1 Peter 1, 14 through 17. 1 Peter 1, 14 through 17. As obedient children, there it laid it out, right? We can just pray and go away now, right? It literally says, this is what we got to be. As obedient children, uh, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. There was a way that we lived, but now we walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, and that is us as obedient children. Verse 15, but as he who called you is holy, that is set apart, consecrated, different, you also be set apart, consecrated, and different in all of your conduct. Do you hear that? Your conduct has to be separated and different than the world. Since it is written in verse 16, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Verse 17, if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's conduct, you need to conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile. That is, we recognize that we're here for a short period of time and that God is holy. He's called us to be holy, and we're holy in our conduct through being obedient children. How much more should we be teaching our children that that exact principle matches with the exact principle of us following our own Heavenly Father? If we're not helping our children learn that in our home, how do we expect them to learn that when it comes to the eternal principles of obedience to God the Father? It's so important for us to lead our homes this way. And it really just winds up and distills down to this. You need to give your children and your spouse and others a real-time example of real Christian obedience. Right? Far be it from Compass Bible Church for people to come in here and not find examples of Christians as children of God who aren't walking in genuine obedience. When people come to this church, they should see those people are living it out. Those people have been doing that thing that I've been trying to do and I never could do, and they're showing me how to do it, and I never had the Spirit, and they preach the gospel. God indwelled me with the Spirit, and now I've been able to do these things I never could do, and I'm a child of God now. And I recognize the patterns that God has put up in his scripture play out in my day-to-day life. I mean, that's what we're here to do, guys. That's our goal as, as brothers and sisters in Christ. And it really sounds like this. As I learn what God's Word is teaching me, I will immediately obey it. As I learn what God's word is teaching me, I'm going to obey it. That's like your children. When you teach them to do something, your expectation is after you've taught them, they'll do it. Same concept. As we learn what God's word says, the expectation is that we're going to obey it. Because we have God's voice, it's calling out to us, and it's hearkening us to come and follow him. Another adventure of little Hayden. When I was seven, I believe, I think I was seven, something like that, my parents let me out in the country a lot by myself, okay? Uh, When I was seven, I was in the woods alone. It was raining, it was dark, and it was muddy. Uh, And little Hayden was stuck in the woods, and every time I took another step, I got deeper and deeper into the mud. And I was getting stuck, and I was deathly afraid that I wasn't going to make it. And uh, it wasn't that bad, but in my mind it was. And... uh, I hear a voice, because I'm crying out, I'm, help, 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 I'm stuck. Uh, and I hear a voice way away on the edge of the woods into a clearing. And it says, over here, follow my voice, over here, over here. And I start trudging my way that direction, which is the opposite direction I was going. And the, each step I took, uh, the ground got a little drier. 
it got a little harder. And the clearing got a little more visible. And I recognized that as I followed the voice uh, that was beckoning me to follow them out of danger, out of the woods, out of darkness, out of the mud, and out of the rain, I recognized that I was going into a direction that was for my good. And you see where I'm going, if you know anything about conclusions, okay? (laughs) You recognize that the voice of God, through his word, is calling us to follow the godly biblical patterns that he has set apart for us to follow. That if we would apply them in our homes, that we would teach our children these while they're young, they're going to grow up and they're, gonna, they're, gonna, they're not going to go the wrong way as long as many people are. Right? They're going to recognize the folly of disobedience a lot sooner than other people. And that's our goal and our hope as parents that as we obey God, our children learn what it means to obey God, and then we just create little disciples who are prepared to go out and make more disciples. And that's our goal, and that's what we're going to do. And so with that, I say, Compass Bible Church, let us follow the voice of God. Let us be the church that God would use to build his kingdom here. And let us not only look to make disciples outside, but let us look to make disciples in our homes. Let's pray. God, as we come to you, just so grateful of the stewardship of a new church, grateful for the stewardship of families, of husbands and wives and children, and so thankful for the stewardship of your word that lays patterns biblically, patterns for our day-to-day life that correspond with heavenly, eternal realities. Thank you, God, for giving us your word to prepare us not only for the here and now, but for the then and there. God, help us live that out truly this week God, help us with our community to give us other people who are walking in a manner worthy of you, that we can all walk together, fully pleasing to you, bearing fruit in every good work and growing in the knowledge of you. So help us do that this week as we close. In Christ's name, amen.